Our text this morning is John chapter 13, starting verse 18 and continuing through the rest of the chapter. I do not speak concerning all of you I know whom I have I, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there, were, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give, give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that your word is powerful when it is attended by your spirit. Would you bless this preaching of your word with this spirit, that you would soften our hearts, open our eyes, and make fast our steps. Father, we seek your face, but we know that without your spirit, we seek it in vain. Draw us, each and every one, to yourself. Make us like your son. Pour out your spirit on us, and in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we start um, this section uh, with Judas leaving to betray Jesus. Again, we're at the very end of uh, Jesus' life. Um, Jesus had already been vaguely hinting that this was going to happen earlier. If you go back to chapter 6, uh, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. John, looking back, understands why it was that he said that he was a devil. He knows, now knows that it's because he betrayed him. But even back then, Jesus knew that there was something wrong with Judas and had identified it. Um, and we know that Judas had been headed in this direction for a while. This wasn't a sudden transformation in Judas. Remember um, back in chapter 12, verse 6, when uh, Jesus, when we have the anointing at Bethany, 
Um, we remember that, that Judas objects to the pouring out of the costly oil on Jesus' feet because he says it should have been sold and given to the poor, and then we find out it was because all along he'd been helping himself to the cash box. So this wasn't like a sudden transformation in Judas. He had been like this in a two-faced way for some time. So this has been, this has been slowly building, and, Jude, and Jesus, we're told here that Jesus knew about Judas's coming betrayal because it had been prophesied. He cites um, Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. All right, so Jesus knew that that was about him, that his own friend that he trusted is going to lift up his heel against him. It's interesting if you just keep going the next verse. But you, O Lord, be merciful, merciful to me and raise me up. He, he knows that there's a hope of being raised up in the midst of being uh, betrayed. But he knows from uh, that, that psalm that it's been prophesied that Judas will betray him. But he doesn't just know it from prophecy. There, there is the prophecy that this will come, but he doesn't just know it from prophecy. He knows it from his own divine will. Verse 18, um, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, right? I know, I know whom I have chosen, and he knows that Judas is not in uh, that number. Those that come to Jesus are coming to him because God willed that they should come to him. Uh, look at uh, chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Uh, their, their faithfulness and their uh, unfaithfulness is a result of God's foreordaining, his choosing. Um, and Judas's betrayal of Jesus is an outworking of that same will. Look at 1712. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, this is the, the son praying to the father, those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture may be fulfilled. The betrayal of, Jesus, of Judas had been prophesied. It had also been foreordained. It was an acting out and a playing out of God's own will. And this is not to say that Judas was forced to do something against his own will. This was legitimately and fully Judas's choice. But it was also the outworking of the sovereign decree of God. Right? Judas was not a robot, not an automaton. This was a path that he chose, but he chose it as a result of God's own foreordaining. And so Jesus tells Judas, go do it. Go ahead, go and do it. Verse 27, now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Go ahead and go and do it. Judas goes out to betray Jesus at Jesus' own command at that point. Now, that puts, I think, verse 21 in a really interesting light. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, uh, and, and he, he knows his, his death is coming, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Um, and that's when he says, one of you is going to betray me. I think it's just really strange that it describes this, this moment where Jesus is troubled in spirit. He's, he's troubled by what is about to happen. 
On the one hand, if you think about it, it makes sense to be troubled. He's about to be betrayed, and he knows it, right? His betrayer is sitting right there, and he knows it. So, so he's about to be betrayed. makes sense that he is going to be troubled. He's about to be executed, and he knows it. <clears throat> and so Jesus, being fully man, he, he, he's fully man, he feels the weight and the, the terror of this, and he's troubled in his spirit. On the other hand, we have to realize, and, and this is the thing that I think is really important, that this was not everything going wrong. This was not everything going wrong. You would be tempted to think that. You'd be tempted to think that everything has fallen apart. And the disciples surely thought that as everything started to play out, that, that the whole thing has fallen apart and it's going wrong. And that's why he has to assure them in verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes to pass that when it does come to, come to pass, you may believe that I am he. I am, I'm telling you all of this beforehand because when it comes to pass, you're going to look around and say, it's all falling apart. This whole thing is a disaster. Our whole project over the last three years has come to nothing. You're going to be tempted to think that. So I'm telling you beforehand that it's going to all get messed up so that when it happens, you will understand that I am he. Specifically, he's telling them this beforehand, that they might understand who he is and that they might believe in him. I'm telling you this before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. So he's prophesying this total catastrophe in, in, to them so that when it happens, they will see it and they will come to faith in him. He tells them because obviously what is about to happen will rattle their faith. And from a human perspective, as I've said, everything is going to go wrong. Jesus will be betrayed by one of his own. Um, and if you're sitting there with him when he's betrayed by one of his own, your big question is going to be, did he not see that coming? Right? It's, it's really difficult to believe that someone has omniscience when they're sitting there and, and one of their closest um, companions betrays them, seemingly un, unknowing uh, to that person. If you think about betrayal as one of those things that's really hard, you can have people wrong you, right? And that makes you kind of bitter and resentful at them. But when there's betrayal, it's not just somebody wronged you, but somebody sort of wooed your confidence and then manipulated that confidence against you to then strike a blow against you, that one, that always hurts a lot more because it's not just that they wronged you, but you feel like you yourself wronged yourself. You feel your own sort of complicity in that evil that was done. Right? Someone who's betrayed is not only mad at that person, but they're mad at themselves, right? Because they feel like they failed in not seeing through the duplicity. Somebody else from a distance was looking at it and they could see what was happening, but you right up close could not see it. And so you're mad at yourself. You feel your own personal failure when there is a betrayal. So then to have Jesus be betrayed, doesn't that make him a failure? Particularly, again, when one of his attributes is supposed to be omniscience. Isn't that going to look like um, some sort of failure on, on his part? So he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be arrested and executed. And let's be honest, um, execution is usually the end of a leader's career right? If you're, if you're leading a movement and you get executed, that's kind of the end of your influence. That you're, you're done. Maybe other things happen, but you're usually done there. It's hard to think that there's much to gain in following someone who is dead. And at his arrest, all his disciples will desert him. 
They will all fall short in an embarrassing way, all in one night. All in one night, it all is going to fall apart. You can imagine on the morning after the crucifixion, um, there would have to have been a lot of sort of sheepish disciples walking around, you know, trying to not make eye contact with one another, just kind of pretend like that didn't happen because it has all fallen apart and they've all walked away. So Jesus says that I am telling you beforehand that's how it's going to play out um, so that you will believe so that you will believe. And in particular, you will, you will, there's something in particular that you will believe. Um, the tr- your translation, if you look at it, um, I tell you before, and I'm in verse 19, I tell you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Your translation probably, at least the New King James does this when it supplies something that's not necessarily in the text, but they're just supplying something to make the sentence work. They usually put that in italics, and you'll notice that the he is in italics, all right? The, the, the Greek would literally be, you will believe that I am. I am the I am. Remember, this is something that, that John has continually taken us back to throughout this gospel, that Jesus is the I am. All right, in this moment, when everything is going wrong, Jesus is the one who is. And you're going to, in the midst of all of this, start to see that he is the I am. All human plans and expectations will fail. And at that point, the real identity of Jesus will be revealed. At that point, they will understand that he is God incarnate, the word made flesh. This is why... When everything goes wrong in the worst possible way, that's the moment at which he says, look at verse 31. So when he had gone out, he being Judas, so the betrayal, the disaster, all of it has been put in motion. And that's the moment that Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. This is the moment where you get to see the glory of God in Jesus And it's the moment that from a human perspective, everything is falling apart. All of the machinations are are falling to nothing. So all human plans and expectations fail, and that's when Jesus is going to be revealed. So you think about it, we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The thing that we're asking for is for God to to be displayed on earth, glorified on earth, revealed to this earth just as he is in heaven. And what does it look like when God is glorified on earth? It will likely be a lot of things not going the way we would have scripted it for God. Okay, We'll come back to this point in a little bit, but I think that's something that you just really need to get into your bones. We want God glorified on earth, but when God's glory is revealed, it regularly comes out in this way that you wouldn't have told the story that way. It usually comes out at the moment that all of your plans are kind of knocked to the ground. And then all of a sudden, God's glory is revealed. We'll return to that point in just a moment. But now the Son of Man is glorified. Verse, looking at verse 31. Remember that throughout the first half of the Gospel of John, the the book of signs, we refer to that as the book of signs, Jesus has been saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. But in this week leading up to his crucifixion, he's constantly saying, now, this is it, now, now you're you're seeing it. 
The difficulty is, and, and this, is, this is kind of an interesting thing, and I think this will be something that we're going to be um, dwelling on really through the, Latin, the, the second half of John. We're going to have to come back to this quite a lot. The difficulty is that the moment of his glorification will also go hand in hand or be immediately followed by the moment of his departure. Like, Look at verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, okay, I'm going away. I'm going somewhere you can't go. So here's the moment. He's about to be glorified. Also, he's leaving, okay? So you, you see there's a little bit of a tension where you're sitting there wondering, I don't get how this is going to work. It's the moment of his glorification will be the moment of his departure. Now, he's been telling people about his departure for some time. If you look at um, 7.34, you will seek me, he's speaking to the Jews here, you will seek me and cannot find me, and where I am going, you cannot come. Or 8.21, then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So he's been saying this for a while, that he's going away, but now all of a sudden that moment is, is impending, and it's synchronized with his glorification. You're about to see this glorification, and also this is the moment that I finally depart. And it creates, I think, a real tension. He says there now at the moment that God's glory will finally be, re be revealed in the person of Jesus, yet he says also that he's going away, they won't see him anymore. The person of Jesus Christ is about to reveal God's glory. Also, the person of Jesus Christ is about to go away. And so there's a problem. The solution to this tension is that first, after Jesus leaves, he will continue to be on display in the disciples that he leaves behind. This glorification that will happen in Christ is a glorification that he's going to hand off to his disciples before he departs. And it will remain on earth in the body of his disciples, that is, the body of his church. We know, we know think about it this way, we know that we are called the body of Christ, right? We call ourselves the body of Christ. It's, a, it's an image that's used uh, particularly by Paul to describe who we are. We are the body, he is the head. And the body remains on earth as a revelation of that glory that Christ had at the resurrection, Remember when, when Paul was, um, before he was converted, he's on the, the um, road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him. Now, Paul is on his, or Saul at this time, right? Saul is on his way to Damascus, and his plan there is to go arrest and persecute Christians, the disciples that remain behind. He wants to go arrest them and persecute them and hopefully execute them if possible, right? So that's what he's going there. And it's interesting when Jesus appears to him, how does Jesus confront him? He says, um, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Why are you trying to persecute me? When you go after the, bo the body of Christ, you are persecuting Jesus because when he left, that, that group of people became his body, and to persecute that group is to persecute Jesus himself. The disciples of Jesus, which is the church, are the continuing revelation of the glory of God on earth. And the way that God is glorified in the church is by the church obeying the command, verse 34, of love. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so that you also love one another. 
Right? There's this incredible glory that we have revealed in the death of Christ, where he loves us so much that he gives himself for us on the cross. That's the glorification there, when we finally see this incredible love. He ascends to heaven after the resurrection, but that love remains behind in the church. A new command I give to you, that you're going to live out this love. I'll do it first. I'll show you what love looks like but I'm going to leave and you are commanded to now live that out. So he loved, he loved us and he did this on the cross. Uh, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Okay, The greatest love is the sacrifice that Jesus is about to make on the cross. That was literally love incarnate. Okay, It's literally love incarnate. That was perfect love that moment. And that love is given to us, right, um, through our salvation. And that love is then expected for us to work it out um, um, as we love one another. So because he loved us, we must love one another. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also so you love one another. In that, in that love that we give to one another, the glory of the cross is then proclaimed to the world by the way that the church exhibits love. Okay? They, the others will know the reality of Christ based on the way we live out that love. Okay? The love on the cross is the love that we give one another. People are convinced about the reality of the cross as they see the love that, that lives in the body of Christ. You probably know that in the Gospel of John, um, John, he, he frequently doesn't refer to himself as John. He doesn't use his own name. Rather, he describes himself as the beloved disciple. And I always think that sounds a little bit self-important. It's almost as if like John, when he's riding along and describing himself, and then Jesus' favorite was, you know, and, and, and it's this kind of self-important kind of way of referring to himself. But it's interesting that also when you read John, you will see two things. Um, first, how powerfully um, John uh, the evangelist, as he's writing the gospel of John, how powerfully he felt the love of God directed to him. Okay? The, it, and it, it, I think it comes out in John more than any other gospel. He constantly describes the love of God that was poured out for us. Um, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He's constantly describing God's love for us. But then he also, the, the other thing that you'll know when you read John is he, he describes God's intense love for us, but then he always turns to the need that we have to show love towards one another. Look at, you know, the epistles of, of John are a really good place to see that. Let me just give you like a, a really quick skim through 1 John and you start to see how present this is. Look at 1 John 2, um, starting at verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you should hear, you should, that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
or verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God (coughs) must love his brother also. John John constantly connects where you, you taste the love of God and it makes you love one another. People who do not love one another have not tasted the love of God. And this is his argument throughout. I, I, I halfway suspect that John refers to himself as the beloved disciple, not so much out of self-importance, but he is simply saying what he felt in an overwhelming way. How can he describe himself but the one who has tasted this love? Right? He, he felt it in a powerful way, and it defines everything he does from then on, and that's how he identifies himself. He knows that he was loved by God and must now extend that love through the church. Look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, so again, you, you testify to the reality of what Jesus did on, on the cross, that perfect love, that perfect sacrifice, you testify to that reality by living as a body that, that, um, that puts that love on display and how we treat one another. Now, Peter, of course, is classic Peter at this moment. Look at uh, verse 36. Basically, if you go away, I'm going with you. If you go away, I- I'm, I'm going with you. And I, th- I think that there's a fundamental mistake or misunderstanding that Peter has here. And I think it's important to identify this because in one way, this is kind of like the dividing line between orthodox evangelical faith and theological liberalism, okay? Orthodox evangelical faith and theological liberalism. And what I mean by that is this. Um, are we followers of Jesus because we have been inspired by his example or Are we followers of Jesus because a mysterious and inexplicable spiritual force has transformed us into a new kind of creation? Okay, are you you following a spiritual example or has something been done to you that makes you into a different kind of person? Those are two very, very different ways and they they create two very, very different paths. The first is this theological liberalism. It, It sees Jesus as a moralistic example um, he's, he, it, it follows the example of Christ. And by doing that, it can unpack all kinds of really interesting and profound observations. Right? Somebody who's just sitting there and trying to follow the example of Christ can notice all kinds of interesting things and do all kinds of interesting work laying it all out for you. It can produce a very intelligent and insightful in it, um, in its, uh, it can be intelligent and insightful in its analysis of Jesus, and it can be very emotionally moving at times as it describes a story of Jesus in a way that compels you to want to follow that example. But it fails to understand what salvation really is. I say that this is Peter at this moment because up till now, he sees himself as Jesus' devoted imitator, right? I am with you 
Where you go, I will go. What you do, I will do. I am devoted to you, and I am following closely your example. He does not understand, however, that he cannot imitate Jesus without first being transformed by Jesus. He cannot follow Jesus until Jesus has actually made a transformation in his life and, and made a new creation, changed him into a different kind of being. Think of Jesus at the foot washing. Don't wash my feet. Let me wash yours. I want to I do what you do. Let me do this. Let me be serving you. And Jesus says, no, you can't imitate me until you have been transformed by me. You need, you need me to wash you first. I have to take care of you first. And when you've been transformed, then you can follow my example. Then you, and, and there is a time when we follow his example, but it has to be after you've been transformed. Here we see it again. Jesus says, I'm going away. Peter says, I'm going with you, even if it means dying. But Jesus says, you can't go there until I have gone there for you. You're not capable of it until I go there first. And once I've done that, in the same way that I need to wash your feet first, once I go there to this death first, then you can. Then you can be that kind of man. If being a disciple of Jesus was simply a matter of following his example, then, then if you think about it that way, then there was never a time that the disciples were better prepared to stand with him than on this night. Right? If, if being a disciple was just following his example, there's never a better moment for the test of whether they'll follow the example. They've spent three years sitting at his feet, hearing all of his teaching. And in this moment, you know, th this is when their, their tightness and their commitment to him is, is beyond any other moment. This, they are so close and connected and motivated by him and ready to follow him. And yet this is the night that he will be betrayed by Jesus, abandoned by his disciples, and denied by Peter three times. The example of Christ is not enough. You have to actually be transformed by him in order to live like him. We're not Christians because we're inspired by the example of Jesus. We're Christians because something has happened to us. Think, you know, and Jesus began his teaching with this fact, which it's, they're still figuring out. Think of him speaking to Nicodemus in chapter 3. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And he's been saying this all along. You have to actually have a spiritual rebirth if you want to follow the example that he is setting. If Peter wants to go where Jesus is going, he must be born again. It's not enough to have Jesus as your rabbi. You must be born again. So put all of this together for a moment, and I want to go backwards kind of through the three points that I've made so far. I'll go backwards through these three big points. So the first one... You must be born again. God works in you a spiritual transformation by the power of his Holy Spirit to change you into a new kind of person. You must have this new birth in order to follow Christ. And it's something that comes from God. 
that he gives to us, that he initiates to us, and it's a spiritual transformation that he initiates that comes from him. It is not us trying harder, doing better, trying to follow an example. And second, that transformation, when it happens, that transformation is lived out in the way that we love one another. Okay, that, that transformation, he loves us, and then we love one another. Okay, because he has loved us, then we start to love one another. And third, and this is the first point that I began with, and I think this is the thing that's really important to get, the circumstances for that love um, to be on display are often, if, if not almost always, in a setting of apparent failure and disaster. Okay, the, the, the setting in which we live out that love that he has given to us is a setting that's always screwed up, that's always messed up, that's always failures all around. And it's always in the circumstances that we never would have planned. This is not how I would have written this story. And you're plunked into it, and you're supposed to love in the midst of it. It's, it's circumstances that... Of, that will look like failure. Think, think about that in your life and the challenges that are right before you now. If you have been born again, then you are, each one of you, the beloved disciple, right? You are the beloved. Um, I think it's interesting that, remember, I, I think I've mentioned this a number of times, John is really, it's basically that first half of chapter one of John is pretty much the whole gospel. Everything else is just unpacking that. Um, and you, you should constantly go back to those first 15 verses or so to explain everything that you're hitting. And I just think it's really interesting to see, um, if you look back at chapter one, one of the things we, we learn about the word, the logos, is that the word is in the bosom of the Father. And I think it's interesting to see when we see John here, we see him in the bosom of Jesus, laying there at the, at the Last Supper. He is laying there with his head in the bosom of Jesus. The beloved is in the bosom of the Son as the Son is in the bosom of the Father. The Son is um, our connection to God, and we are in him. Um, now, so you live in that love. You live in that love, and that love is supposed to work its way out. It's supposed to flow out but it's always in these difficult circumstances. And the glory of God is revealed to this world by the way in which you love one another in messed up circumstances, right? You, when, you, when you love each other in the moment when it's gone all wrong, that's what it looks like to display God's glory. Just as Jesus was glorified on the night that he is betrayed and we see his glory, you extend that glory when you love one another in messed up circumstances. Let me, let me identify two ways in which the circumstances in which you're commanded to love will feel fairly inglorious, okay? There's two ways that I'll, there's many other ways, I'm sure, but there's, there's two that I'll identify. The first is the setting is regularly small and petty, okay? These moments when you're supposed to display the glory of God will regularly be in moments that are small and petty. In fact, almost every instance in which you have an obligation to live out the love of God will be a moment that is small and petty. It will be the little things like how you treat your kids, your co-workers, other people in traffic, the waiter, 
the poor and unfortunate customer service lady at the car insurance agency who finally got your phone call after you spent 20 minutes in that stupid automated customer service program that sends you in endless loops, but then you finally got out of it because you just started pushing keys randomly and screaming into it. And then she finally comes in and you get a live uh, operator and you make her pay. Right? Sorry, I'm perhaps being a little too autobiographical. <laughs> but but, but you, you know what I mean. Like, like it's all of these little stupid, trivial moments that that's where the love of God um, is supposed to be on display. Those are the moments that God gives to you. The settings will be small and petty. And because of this, they will feel like they don't matter. They will feel trivial, like something as trivial as someone perhaps having a dirty foot. But the love of God compelled Jesus to get down on his knees and wash those feet. Okay? That's what the love of God looks like, is it suddenly sees a little trivial, petty thing, and it pours out love in that moment. And the love of God, which you have tasted in Jesus, compels us to love in the small and petty and trivial settings, all those little places. Um, Parents with kids, I speak specifically to you because um, if you're a parent of a little kid, I can tell you right now that God is giving you high, high reps right? He, he is giving you reps like crazy. I mean, every, it seems like every minute he's blowing the whistle and he's saying, give me 30 small and petties, right? <laughs> All the time, right? But, but when you do reps at a time like that, you, you will be amazed at the fruit of that kind of obedience and that kind of faithfulness. So do not grow weary in loving the little ones. It's the glory of God on earth when you love them in little trivial ways and through all the small and petty challenges that they're flinging at you right and left. And that love, remember again, the, the, the sort of eschatology of this love, the where it's going, that love proclaims the gospel to everybody around you. People believe in Jesus because, because saints are being faithful in the small and petty. Another way that circumstances in which we're called to love will feel inglorious will be in, in who God gives us to be the object of our love, okay? Because here's the, here's the, the spoiler, they're all unworthy of it right? They, none of them really can inspire you to the level of love that you're commanded to give. Um, think of Jesus and the way he is pouring out his love for his disciples at the moment that they're deserting him, at the moment that he can sit there and tell Peter, you say you're going to be with me. I know you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. I know this. And with that full knowledge, he's still going to go and give the greatest act of love possible and give his life for Peter. Look at verse 35 again. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The body of Christ declares the truth of the gospel when we love one another inspired by the love that God has given us, not by the worthiness of one another because we're all unworthy. And it's really important to get this and understand it. The motivation for the commandment is not the worthiness of the object of our love. It's the worthiness of the one who first loved us. And the fruit is public. The, the, the city will know when we behave like that. I'd like to apply this specifically to us as a church body, because that's really the body of Christ. That's what we're talking about, the, the church body. 
our testimony to this town, Moscow, Idaho, our, um, our ability to um, proclaim the gospel to this town is directly connected to our commitment to love one another. And this commitment is based not on how great of a church we are, but on how great of a savior we have. Okay, and we have to get that that straight because the thing is, is I think that we have a pretty tremendous church, and I know that we have lots of people moving to Moscow to be a part of a church that they have, you know, has this really stellar reputation. However, everybody that gets here, you're going to find out that we're a mess, that we're that we're a mess, and that we're sinners, and that we're not worthy of it. That that your expectations that you're coming to a church that is fantastic are going to be disappointed because we're not worth it. Our Savior is worth it, and 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 for Him, that's a good reason to commit to loving one another. He is worthy of it. We are not. We're not a perfect church. Your pastors are sinners, your elders are sinners, and the people up and down these aisles are sinners. And what is more, if you stick around for very long at all, they are going to sin against you, all right? They're going, they're going to sin against you. They will rip you off in business deals. They will lie about you. They will romance you and then ditch you. They will be hypocrites, cowards, and cheaters. They will cut you off in traffic. They will be ungrateful guests in your home, and they will give you heartache and pink eye. Right? I, I'm telling you, stick around long enough, the pink eye comes. Every year there's one, right? It's the, the pink eye Judas. That, that, and you'll get it at church. That's where it's going to happen. So now, hopefully not everything on this will happen to you um, at the hands of someone you go to church with, but I bet at least a couple of these things will happen to you over the years at the hands of somebody else here at church. So here's the question. When that happens, will you say, everything has gone wrong and this isn't working? <laughs> this, this is not what I signed up for. It's all gone wrong. It isn't working. Or will you understand that your love and commitment to one another is not based on our goodness. It's based on the love that we have from a perfect Savior. Saints, Please understand this, the motivating force for how we love one another cannot be how good of a church we think this is. It must be, it must always be, how great a love our Savior has had for us. And if your eye is on that love, then you can love one another despite betrayal, despite abandonment, despite all the failures that we have, we can still love one another. And the great irony is, so here, here's the thing. I'm saying, you know, like, let's say, let's say you, you think this church has a great reputation, and I'm saying, don't rely on that reputation. Rely on the reputation of the Savior. But what's the great irony here is that once you start acting like this, John says, then your church has a great reputation. Because people will hear, they will see the love, and they will know the truth of Jesus. They will know that Jesus is the I am. Because something different than just people following a moral example is happening here. Something different is happening. These are people who've actually been, been transformed by the gospel. A new birth has happened. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as John says elsewhere, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Father, we delight in the fact that we can call you Father, that we have been reborn as your children. We know that this gift of rebirth is an inheritance of your perfect love and inheritance beyond all wealth. 
Father, we thank you for this love, and we ask that you would continue to empower us with your Holy Spirit, that we might put your glory on display in our town by the way that we freely give this love to one another. (coughs) And so we pray, as your son taught us to pray, saying, One of the great heresies of our world is known as historicism. Historicism says history is the greatest force in all of human existence. It trundles down the corridors of time, inevitably overcoming all obstacles and contradictions. Historicism sees history as a closed system with everything happening because of what came before. The problem with historicism is that it essentially makes history a god. You cannot change the past, it says. You can only hope to ride the wave of the future. It claims that history is ultimate truth. All our conceptions of truth must be synthesized with it. Ultimately, historicism sacrifices people and particulars for the impersonal and the so-called ideal. But we are Christians, and we do not put our trust in history. We trust in Jesus, who is the Lord of all history. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and all things are held together by his mighty word. History is not some kind of mindless, impersonal force. History is God's story. It's a symphony, a poem, a tapestry, with millions of particulars that are valuable to him. He cares about every detail, so they are all important. There are echoes and rhymes and types and shadows, but truth is not in process. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we have his word, which is truth, truth that anchors all the way down, truth that sets us completely free. This bread and this wine proclaim Jesus as Lord of history, the commander of the ship of history, Because he died and rose again in history, and he commands us to do this and remember him and the remission of all our sins until the end of the world. As we partake here, we are pulling the thread of the death and resurrection of Jesus into every week, all time, until every moment, every part of the story has this theme. And this means our faith matters, our obedience matters, our repentance matters. Historicism says you cannot change the past. But Jesus is Lord of the whole story, and his blood and righteousness changes everything. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. You've been reminded this morning of the great love of God the Father for you and his son, Jesus. And that is the ground, the motivator of our love for one another. And so as the Lord gives you reps this week, remember it. Remember the love of God for you. It's not for the sake of the person next to you or the person across from you. It's for the sake of Christ. He's loved you that much. You have love to give. So go with his blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. And amen.